We've been working through Joshua over the last few weeks, and we've had some interesting discussions in our home groups, and I won't share everybody's personal business, but some people have a lot of questions about a lot of killing, a lot of destruction. Wait until we get to uh, chapter 12, because that'll be a fun one to preach through as well. So if you're in your book, if you have a Bible with you, it's important that you have it. If you don't have one, look in the seat back in front of you. There are Bibles provided, um, and feel free to take one as a gift from us. Um, It has the same translation that we're using, which is the Christian Standard Bible. And so we are in the book of Joshua, and we're going to be in chapter 11. And as we think about this chapter, there's something that I've been noticing, is people are looking for rest. Rest and relief. We're, we, the minute we think COVID is over, is a Delta variant, right? The minute we think, oh, all these troubles with war has finally came to an end. We have revolutions and we have battles. And the minute we think our personal struggle with sin is ended, something pops up. And we have this, this continual fight for rest. Have you noticed that? Does anyone here not have a struggle to get some rest or some relief? In fact, our world will provide you with a very cheap solution for three installments of $19.99, and you will be able to purchase the secret to rest. And you purchase that secret, then they have a booster shot for it, don't they? And we have something additional that comes up. And so we have this need for rest. And I'm going to give you the answer right right up front for free. It's It's God's divine sovereignty. Trusting in God's divine sovereignty will give you rest. Now, the minute I say that, all the theologians in the room begin to get a little nervous, don't they? Is he going to talk about Calvinism? Is he going to talk about Arminianism and modalism and all the other isms out there? And um, I'm not going to go into that. Or Molinism. And the question that we really need to ask is, do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that God is king? Do we believe that God is in control? Because that's what we see in this, in this chapter, is that God is in control of everything. And if you've missed that about God, you're not going to have rest. So go ahead and make sure you're in Joshua, and I'm going to give you a quick um, definition. So when I say that God is sovereign, I mean that he is in control. He does whatever he pleases and determines. He has absolute independence to all he wants. Nothing and no creature can thwart the will of God or act outside his will. And I think most evangelical Christians can agree to that definition of God's sovereignty. This is a truth that we have to grasp in order to trust and obey God properly. When we have been going through Joshua, we know that the people of Israel are reading this. Joshua has written a history for the purpose of the future generation, the ones that actually weren't in the battle. Just like you have histories, you know, side note, when I uh, was looking at history books on war, the veterans will, will, th- will say, did I do the most important thing in my life by the time I turned 25? Because they fought in a historic battle. And you could read back at all these things. So that's what we see here. Joshua is writing a history book, but it's not 
for the purpose of teaching the Israelites history. It's for teaching them theology. So the Israelites are reading this to learn who God is. And Joshua is very particular in his writing. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks. So Joshua chapter 11 begins like this. When King Jabin of Hazor heard this news, he sent a message to King Joab of Madon, the kings of Shimron and Akshapesh, Heft, sorry, and the king of the north in the hill country of Arabah, south of Chinnereth, and Ju- the Judean foothills, and the slopes of Dor to the west, the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, the Hethites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill countries, and the Hivites at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah, they went out in all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with a vast number of horses and chariots. All these kings joined forces. They came and camped together at the waters of Merom to attack Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and all his troops surprised them at the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord handed them over to Israel, and they struck them down, pursuing them as far as greater Sidon and Misra, Mis, I, I promise I practiced, Misrathoth, Maim, and to the east as far as the valley of Mizpah. They struck them down, leaving no survivors. Joshua treated them as the Lord told them. He hum, hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back, captured Hazor, and struck down its king with the sword, because Hazor had formerly been the leader of all these kingdoms. They struck down everyone in it with the sword, completely destroying them. He left no one alive, and he burned Hazor. Joshua captured all these kings in their cities, struck them down with the sword. He completely destroyed them, as Moses the Lord's servant had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any of the cities that stood on their mounds except for Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites plundered all the, all the spoils of the cattle of these cities for themselves, but they struck down every person with the sword until they had annihilated them, leaving no one alive. Just as the Lord had commanded his servant Moses, Moses commanded Joshua. That is what Joshua did, leaving nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all this land, the hill country, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the hill, the foothills, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its foothills. From Mount Halak, which ascends to Seir, as far as Balgad, in the valley of Lebanon, at the foot of Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings, struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. No city made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them were taken in battle. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would be engaged, they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, and Nob, all the hill country of Judea and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza. Gath, and Ashad, Ashdod, sorry. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. 
Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. Let us go ahead and pray. Father God, as we approach this text, we see significant battles and warfare that had lasting influence on the people of Israel. And as we read these passages, little nuggets of of sovereign joy and sovereign power uh, point to who God is, who you are. So Father, as we study this passage, as we come before you to worship you through the proclamation of the word and through singing songs to you and your greatness, Lord, help us to do justice by your character. Help us to be a people who find rest in the sovereign God of the universe. Father, there is no greater joy and no greater blessing than to rest in you, to find relief from all of life's sorrows and troubles in you. Father, and most importantly, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, that atonement for our sins that will also give us rest. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We pray that your spirit would lead us, would guide us into your word, that it would illuminate our minds so that we understand your word. Help me to be behind the text and that you would be what comes out. Father God, we pray for your word to go out and not to return void as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So do you see the point being made in this passage? Do you see what Joshua is trying to point out in this passage? Yeah, he's covering a lot of historical information. So last week we saw that uh, God gave the southern part of Canaan over to the Israelites through this conquest. And it was through some conniving and deception on the part of their enemies. It was through some of their allies who deceived them. But God used all that for the purpose of conquering the southern part of Canaan. So now the north has heard about what Israel is doing. So they banded together. And we see that God sets the scene. Our God sets the scene. And in fact, this allows Israel to conquer in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if they had to spend a lot of time going around and taking out each fortified city. They would have to take their whole army and move all the way around Israel, conquering those points. Now he gets a a, a solid shot at one massive amount of enemies. In fact, we see that he... Even though he breaks the backbone here in Joshua, Joshua breaks the backbone through God's uh, help. We have more battles to fight in Judges and the rest as they take back their inheritance little by little. And so if they had to fight that way, it would be an even longer amount of time. So what we have is that we have a massive enemy buildup. Look at, at verse 1 and 2 and really 1 through 5. I like to call these the parasites. All the parasites have gathered together. And um, mainly because of Amorites, Hesites, Parasites, Jebusites, right? You get it, Parasites. They all gather together, and their army is, look how their army is described. They went out with all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with a vast number of horses and chariots. I want you to get a feel for the enemy forces that are arrayed against Joshua and the Israelites. They said they were so numerous they lost count. We couldn't even see these these people, how, how many people they were. We couldn't even count them. There were so many. And they were 
had the best equipment of the day. They had the Apache helicopters. They had the um, Abrams tanks, the Bradley fighting vehicles. They had all the equipment, the modern technology of the day, horses and chariots. And these Israelites, what did they have? They got some slings. They got some swords. They probably captured a few things from their enemies. But they don't really have a standing uh, battalion of uh, heavy battalion of tanks or these platforms that they call chariots. And chariots are really powerful because they were not only fighting platforms for them to shoot arrows from, they were also equipped with uh, weapons and, and blades on the side in order to run people over with. I mean, imagine a full-size horse. I'm not talking about like a little Shetland pony. I'm talking about a full-size horse, heavy and loaded down with an armored man on top of it. And you, a skinny little Israelite, standing looking at that thing, you would be overwhelmed. And that's the reality of most of our situations, is that we are overwhelmed in our battles against sin, against the, the, the forces of the world, but the unholy trinity, I've been calling it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have this battle that we fight that seems overwhelming. And so we have a massive enemy force buildup, and they all band together against the people of God. Isn't it funny how people who have problems will set aside their problems just to attack the people of God? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how the Taliban, as they have been taking back these cities that we uh, fought for, they're taking these cities back, and they have a lot of sects in Islam, don't they? They have different religious opinions, and normally they would be fighting and cutting each other's heads off, but now they have banded together against the Americans and anybody left. We see that with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the time of Christ. They had their little differences, and they put aside their differences in order to attack Jesus, didn't they? They, they banded together against Christ. Now, one of the things that you need to learn as you read through the Old Testament is imagine Christ also reading that same Old Testament with you. I mean, not only did he author it, we know, through the Spirit and all that, but I also want you to think about him as a, as a young man reading the Torah, reading through these prophets, reading through the, the, the histories. How would he see what he is reading? If anybody can say that he is the point of the story, it would be Jesus. And so as he's reading through this, what would be some of his thoughts? Well, one thing, it would point to the necessity of the fulfillment of his job. Because if Joshua fails to conquer Canaan, where is Jesus going to come from? Because if the Israelites don't get a land, a home of their own, where is the, the plan of redemption going to come from? If they cannot get into the promised land, where are they going to live? They're going to live out in the desert, and they're not going to be as populous as they were by the time Christ came. And so this is all part of this history of redemption as we see it building. The people of Israel are getting this land, even though the enemy forces seem to be overwhelming. And the focus seems to point to the overwhelming odds that Israel is facing, Joshua and his armies are facing. They are a small band of brothers against a massive enemy. It's David and Goliath uh, before David and Goliath happened. And we see this massive army. So, the next thing we have to understand is that God is sovereign. God is in control. And in order for us to understand who God is, let's look at verse 6. 
The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. So he said this before, hasn't he? He's encouraged the Israelites before and said, I will give you this people, and then he gives them the people. And over and over again, we see the same pattern. God is the one who gives the victory, and he gives the victory. But then he says something strange. He says, you are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. What does that mean? Why would they hamstring the horses? Cut the back part of the horse so that it's basically lame. It's no longer useful for war. Why would you burn the chariots? Why would the Taliban, as they're taking back American-held areas, have more helicopters now than about 100-something countries? Because they've, ca they've captured American helicopters. Now, if you think about that, the Israelites could have really had an advantage if they captured these chariots and horses. But God did not want that. He said, trust me. Burn the chariots, burn the tanks, burn all the equipment because you have to rely on me. There's a, a famous story about these, uh, I think it's the conquistadors, who were going and they were kind of like disgruntled. They were, dis they were depressed, they were tired, they did not like this country that they had come to, um, South America, it was just too jungly for them. They wanted to go back to Spain, and so they were heading back towards the ships. They look, and then on the distance, they saw the ships being burnt. The, the commander of these conquistadors burnt the ships. He burnt the ships. He says, we're not going anywhere. There's nowhere to go now. Their only hope is victory. And that's what we see in Joshua. God has told Joshua to trust completely. Trust me completely. So this is Joshua's conundrum. Does he trust God completely? Or does he go about using his own wisdom, which would say, keep the chariots, keep the horses, let's train up a, a, a battlefield so we can keep the land we're about to conquer. How many of you are trying to keep, on, keep these horses and these chariots and not trust in God? And when he takes them away from you, you get a little grumpy. God, I don't know why you took my favorite cell phone. Why did you take away my electronic device that I like to read my Bible on? How dare you make me go back to reading an uninterrupted version of your word? Right? Why do we get upset about these things? It's because we don't trust God completely. When something bad happens in your life, you're really quick to blame anybody else, even sometimes yourself, but you don't trust God. Have you noticed that? We don't want to ascribe evil to God, but at the same token, we also fail to recognize who's in control. And if God is in control, then we need to trust Him, not ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we have no responsibility, does it? Look at verse 7. This is what I love about Joshua. If anybody's an example, Joshua is the example because he goes... I lost my place. There we go. So Joshua and all his troops surprised them at the waters at Merom and attacked them. Remember, every time we hear God says something to Joshua, he gets up early and goes and does it, or he goes overnight. He runs overnight and ambushes them like last week. Well, once again, he goes and attacks the tanks, the Bradley fighting vehicles, the helicopters. He goes straight at them. 
with his little band of dudes with slingshots and swords and arrows, and they charge in, probably at a time when they were not ready, because this was a gathering point. We don't know exactly where this was. It's just off to the side of the, of the Sea of Galilee a little bit um, is where we're guessing. There's been a lot of battles there in the past, and so it could have been a gathering place. And so as they're milling about getting ready, Joshua ambushes them instead of letting them attack. And we know that this is a book that's been used a lot in the military academy to study tactics. We know Sun Tzu talks about just determining where your enemy um, needs to fight you in order to give you the advantage, right? So Joshua uses tactical wisdom here. He says, well, God says he's going to give me victory. Let's attack. And he just charges in. He goes. And he uses his wisdom. But it's because of his obedience. Look at verses 10 through 15. It says, At that time Joshua turned back, captured Hazor, struck down the king with the sword, because Hazor had formerly been the leader of all these kingdoms. They struck down everyone in it with the sword, completely destroying them. He left no one alive. Then he burned Hazor. One of the things that we have discovered in our archaeological time has been to dig up these old, these old cities. And they're called a tell. And it just mean, basically means a mound or a, a little hill. And what would happen is a city would get destroyed, all the rubble would lay there, the dust would cover it, and then someone would come along and build another city right on top of it. And it would just keep happening over and over. So then, as archaeologists could come forward, they could cut open this hill, and they can see the layers of these different cities. And one of the things they discovered is around this time frame, there has been a, a lot of destruction of cities going on. But they didn't really see a lot of burning of cities. And so that would lead people to say, well, there's a later date for the invasion, maybe the 1300s instead of the 1400s BC. The reality is when the judges happened, when the people of Israel began to conquer their lands, their own little inheritance portions, that's when they started burning the cities. So in here we notice they only burn one city. They only burn Hazor. So just keep in mind that our archaeological evidence keeps pointing back to the 1400s B.C. for the invasion period. And so we see obedience. He destroys Hazor, and then we see him go ahead and strike down all the people like he had been commanded. And over and over again, you see a pattern. So when you see something in the Old Testament repeated, what does that mean? It means pay attention, right? There's a reason why it's being repeated. And so it talks about they struck down every person with the sword until they had annihilated them, leaving no one alive, just as the Lord commanded. And we see over and over again, God commanded, they did. Joshua is obedient. And we see that over and over and over again. Of all the Israelites, he is the exemplar. He is obedient. And this is what we see in the life of Christ. Christ was obedient to the will of God. Now, they don't have two different wills. Right, Jesus said, I came to do the will of my Father. But over and over again, the way that sin and, and everything was defeated was because Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. So why do we do different? Why do we live a life of disobedience? Why do we think we're going to have victory if we do it my way? Why do we think that we can dethrone God and be successful. I think many people in our society have dethroned God, either by accident or by good intention. 
Some have tried to get God off the hook. And when we do that, we really damage God's character. When we try to get God off the hook, because this is what it says. It says God commanded the destruction of these Canaanites living in this land. God commanded it. And why did he command it? And he commanded it in a gruesome way. Even the infants were to be killed. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the character, the sin character of the Canaanites and how they would commit murder of infants on their little altars. And they would have screaming and crying and they would beat drums to deafen the sound of the dying of the babies. We would hear um, of their sexual immorality and the just wickedness of these people. And so God has a plan that we don't always understand. And so when you try to get God off the hook, you diminish his character, and you accuse him of either being not powerful, or dumb, or not good. Ultimately, you have to recognize that God is in control. There's no such thing as luck. That's been one of the hardest things I've had to, to train myself to say, you know, oh, good luck, or... There's no such thing. So I say happy providence now, just so you know. That's why it sounds weird when I talk. But I'm trying to get rid of this word luck because there is no, no accidents. There's no accidents in God's economy. If there were accidents, God wouldn't be in control. He wouldn't be God. There's nothing out in the cosmos that's outside of God's control because if there was, then we couldn't trust him. Something else would be God. And so we have to recognize that God is in control. Like, you could trust your car to keep your valuable safe, but if it contains no whiz windows, then why would you bother trusting your car? Right? When we say that God is in control of most things, that's like having a car with no windows and putting our valuables inside of it. God is in control, and, and He is able to keep us safe. If God loves us but has no ability to care for us, then we can't trust him, right? If he loves you, God loves you, but he doesn't, he's not in control, then why would you trust him? It would be like a parent who says, don't drink this, you're going to be disciplined, but the parent never disciplines, right? That kid's going to continue to be bad. That kid, the kid is going to continue to do what they want. Nothing can occur outside of God's sovereign will. And we can trust God with our most valuable possession. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, And that is why I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. The most valuable thing is, his, is, is our eternal souls. And who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust yourself? I know that I've tripped three times today. I can barely walk. Why would I trust myself with an eternal soul? Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust a God that loves you but doesn't have any control over the world? That would be hard. God rules on earth and he permits, for reasons only known to him, how people act in ways that are contrary and in defiance to his revealed will. I'm not going to get into this. Just know that God has a, a revealed will or a commanded will, like thou shalt not steal. And then he has a secret will or a unrevealed will. And that doesn't mean he has two wills, it just means he has one, but he has a purpose and he has commands. And I'm not going to get into it because this is a long, long discussion. I read a lot of books on this recently, and I don't want to 
bore us or bog us down. But just know that God says, thou shalt not kill, but people kill. Don't they? Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness, but people lie. Is that against God's will? In his commanded will, yes. But what about Judas, who turned him over? That was against God's will, wasn't it? Or was it? Did God not want Judas to betray Christ? Or did he? So, just recognize there's complexity to this. But ultimately, nothing can happen contrary to God's will. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A person's heart plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. God makes and decides what happens. And there's so many more passages that cover this. So, knowing God is sovereign leads to greater obedience. The question I want you to think about and to ask yourself is this. In what ways do you distrust God's sovereignty? An indicator, a warning light that you are not trusting in God's sovereignty is when you have massive amounts of anxiety and worry. I'm not saying that's the only cause or the only reason, but that's something to consider. What specific ways can you learn to trust in God's plan? I want you to write that down and share that in your home group. I want you to think about it and share that with your home group because that's the, that's the environment that we can pray for each other, we can encourage each other, and we can build each other up. We can do the one another's that we are commanded in Scripture. Trust in God's sovereignty will give you rest. And that's what I'm getting at through all of this. Trusting in who God is, His character, will give you rest. 16 through 23 is the summary of all the conquests. We see that Joshua took all this land, and it gives us a description of the land he takes. In verse 18, Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. Did you catch that? A long time. When we read these these stories, these narratives, it feels like it's all happening like this. Like in a Netflix series speed. Ultimately, this is a marathon of obedience. Joshua is continually obedient. That means it took a long time. The Hebrew for this means a long time. It took a long time. It took a while. And so God's timing is not always your timing or our timing. Can you deal with that? Can you deal with that? Remember Sarah or Sarai and her situation? I'm 90 years old. How am I supposed to have a baby? That's a long time to wait for a baby that God had promised. God said, I'm going to make you so numerous. 80 years old. Let me, let me get my, my, my maidservant and have her come and give me a baby. I'm going to, I'm going to do God's plan for him. Let me do it. I'm so much smarter than God, right? And that's the mentality that we have. So I want you to think hard about your own life. Because it's easy to point pictures, right? You look at Sarah and you're like, or Sarah, and you're like, ha ha, yeah, that's so silly. I can't believe it. And then the next thing you know, you are trying to speed God's plan for your life, right? You're, you're doing things that you normally shouldn't or wouldn't do in order to get what you think God's plan for your life is. Instead of actually spending time developing you know, this is a hard thing for pastors to get. Pastors don't understand, I think, sometimes why God does what he does. 
Sometimes we have great success, and sometimes we don't have any success. And when we look at success, we say, well, I just want people to come to Christ. So what if I put a clown up here and dress up like a cartoon character? I bet we could get people to come in, and then they heal the gospel. That's all we need to do. Or let me get some smoke machines and a laser show, and we'll get folks up in this joint, and they'll be happy, and then we can give them the gospel. Well, what are we doing? Well, we're using our means. We're using the chariots and the horses that God told us to, to slash the heels of, the hamstrings of, for our own victories. And so we have to recognize that we use God's timing, not our timing. And so God may want to give you a long time. I don't know if any of you have heard about this guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a, a pastor. He's fam fairly famous now. He, you know, he, uh, he spent 10 years in a small town, just serving the Lord faithfully. Ten years before God did anything, and now he has this big church. And, of course, with that big church comes lots of headaches and lots of things to learn. But he was faithful in his time. But then you see these young guys who get on in a big church, have a big mega church, and then the whole church collapses because of moral and character failure. And, we, and there's a, a serious Christianity that, today is doing about Mars Hill and this guy named Mark Driscoll who was a very bombastic personality and he would swear and he would yell at folks and he would fight and he just tried to be tough and it was attractive in Portland or in uh, Seattle, Washington. Church grew really big, really fast. I think they had, I don't know, 10,000 people going to it and then the next thing you know, it shut down overnight. Within a week, they fired him and the whole thing dissipated right? It was vanity. It was nothing. So God's timing is not our timing. You may get what you want and fail to achieve what God wants. God hardened the hearts of the inhabitants to destroy them. Verse 20. This is a challenging passage for some. For it was the Lord's intention, you hear that? The Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. God planned this from the beginning to the end. There was no accidents. There was no possible mistakes. All these people came together to fight Israel and not seek a peace treaty because God planned it. Just like we see how, how God uses other nations to destroy um, evil and foolishness and wickedness, He does the same here. God hardens hearts. And we see that with Pharaoh, right? He hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to display His glory. He, or, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, not letting them let the Israelites go in order to show His ability, His power, which was an encouragement to the Israelites and also a protection for the Israelites. Because if Egypt hadn't seen God's power, they would have gone after him, which they did anyway, right? And then they could have then continued to attack Israel from the rear as Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness for their own disobedience. We also know that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And we get warnings about this in Hebrews, don't we? We say God hardens hearts, and they also tell us not to harden our own heart. Proverbs 21 one says, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. When you look at the character of God, you need to think, you, we need to not think 
what we think God is like. That's a really confusing sentence. We need to think, not think, what we think God is like, but what does Scripture tell us about God? One of the biggest difficulties about Bible understanding is when we come to the text with a preconceived notion of what it should say. We want it to say that human beings are sovereign and God is less than sovereign. I don't know, some, some people do. But this is what we see that happens with, with heretics. They have a good idea. They sit there in their minds and they say, man, you know, God is love. And that means that everything God does is love. Therefore, he would never do anything that seems harsh to me. So let me go look in the Bible and, and adjust it to fit my needs. And it's not that they have some malevolent, evil plan. It's just that they bring to the text their own preconceived notions. And that's one of the most difficult things that you and I have to do is when we read this text, the Lord's intention to harden their hearts, do we explain that away? Or do we accept that God is in control? And the problem is, I think we try to squirm out from underneath God's thumb in many ways. And we see in the New Testament often it says, um, God worked in me so that I could will and work for the good purpose. We see this dual, this synergistic effort that goes on. And so man has a responsibility. There's no doubt about it. And God is in control of all things. There's no doubt about it. How that matches up, that's where we get all these theological systems. And I think verse 20 is very clear. God is in control of the situation. Of the Bible to the end, readers are reminded time and again that God is in control of the big and the small, the large and the little, while at the same time never minimizing either human choice or human responsibility. We see both in Scripture. Anybody who does not see that is either foolish or lying or has come up with a system that has holes in it. There's a mystery. Can you be comfortable with mystery? That there's a responsibility, you have responsibility and God is in control. Can you be comfortable with that? It's pretty tough to think about. I have a lot to say on this topic, but we will save it for another day. Just know that God is in control of everything, yet humans remain culpable for their choices. We see that Joshua obeyed God who gave the land rest from war. 23 through uh, 21 through 23 closes out this this chapter, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim. We hear a little bit about these giants, these large men who later show up down the road. So we have some foreshadowing when, when David comes on the scene. And we see that God's purpose in giving the land to Israel is finally accomplished with the defeat of the Canaanites. Rest for the land at the very end of 23. It says the land had rest from war. That's what they wanted. God wanted them to enter the rest. In, in Psalm 95, it says, uh, I did not allow them to enter the rest, you know, when they were because of their rebellion at Meribah, at, this, at the, the, um, the, the streams of Massah. And he said that he did not give them rest, but he did give the next generation, the faithful generation, rest. And that's what we see today. So, in your earthly trials and temptations, you may not experience complete rest. Our passage, we can see that God is sovereign, which leads to better obedience, 
which then leads to rest. The more obedient you are to the revealed will of God, the more rest you're going to have in your life. The more you understand who this God is of Scripture, this King of glory, the more you will have rest in your life, the less anxious you will be. That even though the, the Delta variant or whatever comes after Delta, the Echo variant, I guess, whatever comes next, you can have rest. If the whole country has to shut down again and lock everybody up and there's, there's police on the streets and cops going door to door, we can have rest because we know a sovereign God. It doesn't matter who's in the White House, we can have rest. It doesn't matter what happens in Afghanistan, as, as painful as it is to watch, as, as guys who have served and, and died and sweated and blood and, and all that has gone into these wars can attest, we can have rest. We can have relief. We don't have to turn to the, the drink. We don't have to turn to drugs. We don't have to turn to finding our happiness in a warm body. We don't have to find happiness in a Netflix series or any pop modern history. In fact, get off of that stuff. Turn off the social media. Take a break. Turn the news off every once in a while. Man, for goodness sake, friends, that's just nothing but turmoil that's being fed into your life. Get some rest in the one who's in control. When the, when the odds are stacked against the people of God, over and over and over again, the sovereign God gives rest. You want rest? Turn to God. Who won the victory ultimately? It's Christ. If I was, uh, I don't want that's going to be kind of blasphemous. If Jesus was reading this passage, as we know he did, I think he would see himself as the Joshua, as the people of God who defeats the foe, the enemy, the sands on the sea. He is the one that we find our rest. He is the Sabbath rest that we hear about. We see over and over again, Christ is the Sabbath. Christ is our Shabbat. Christ is our rest. If you don't turn to Christ for rest, you're turning to nothing, to vapor. Turn to Christ for your rest. Gaze on Him. Hebrews 4, 8-11, through For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered this rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. I think it's very clear. Do you want rest? Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Stop with your own works-based righteousness, your filthy rags. You cannot earn it yourself. There's nothing that you can do to make Jesus love you more. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Rest in Him and continue to work towards this obedience. His perfect obedience is translated into yours. This is mind-blowing. This is the mind-blowing truth of Christianity. So, the challenge this week is to help your neighbor find rest. Which means, the antecedent that you have to have rest in Christ. So if you see your neighbor and they're talking about, oh man, did you watch the news yesterday? COVID 18, 19, 20, 25 has, has arrived. 
and there's a war in every country and every state and no one's going to be able to work, how can you point them to the, the true rest that can be found? Your coworker comes by and says, man, I'm worried sick. My children are going to grow up into a world that is a train wreck. And you can say, hey, let me tell you about Joshua. Let me tell you about the enemies of Joshua for just a minute. Tell them about this rest that you have. That's your challenge this week. I want you to seek out opportunities to share the hope, the rest you have in Jesus Christ. If you have rest in Jesus Christ. If you don't, your, your assignment is to get rest in Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm happy to talk to you if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't have this rest. The elders would love to talk to you. I mean, I guarantee you there's anybody in this room who would love to talk to you about Jesus if you don't know him. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that those in this room would find true rest in Jesus Christ. Father, we know that it, it's a, a continuing battle against the things that would entangle and pull us away from true rest in Christ. We know that this world continually battles against us and seeks to dethrone God as sovereign and throw up some other ultimate in our lives. Father, I pray that this would be a people, this community, this Sierra Vista Baptist Church would be a people who rest on Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And then that rest would then permeate everyone that they run across, so that everyone would be on mission from this church body, that they would reach out to their neighbors and they would point them to what is ultimate. Father, do not allow them to get any rest themselves if their neighbors are not resting in you. Father, I pray that you would give us a sense of dis-ease and, di and uncomfortable and uncomfortableness for the sinners around us that are no greater than us, but that are still away from you. Father, if Christ himself cried tears over the lost people why are our eyelids dry? I pray that you would break us for this community, that this community would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we would show them to Christ who is the living water, that we would be a people who are, are, are trusting in you and you alone. Father, if there's anyone in this room does not, that does not know you personally, do not let them rest until they find you. Do not let them have a, 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 the ability to desensitize themselves through this world and then put off the question, do I have rest in Jesus Christ? Father God, I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, through the, the power of the Spirit that indwells us. We thank you, Lord, for you are good and you are great and you are sovereign and we trust in you. In Jesus' heavenly, beautiful name. All God's people say, Amen.